This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God in worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I want to direct your attention, please, to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, will be our text this morning. To our guest, and as a reminder to our congregation, we've taken a break from our series through the book of Genesis, and we are focusing on the question of elders. Uh, our congregation is trying to discern the Lord's will. If we need to change our leadership structure from really from a single elder model or a single pastor model to a multiple pastor or elders model. And so as a guest, I ask you to please bear with us as we work our way through this. Uh, we'll be this Sunday and the next Sunday will conclude the sermon series. I'll still continue meeting with Sunday school classes. Then at the end of October, we'll have a church-wide discussion on this. Then I believe the first Sunday in November, we will be having a church vote on making this change. So guests, please bear with us. Members, thank you for the conversation, the dialogue, the questions that are taking place. It has been very good, healthy, and encouraging. So this morning... We're dealing with the question of who can be an elder. And I think out of this four-part series, this message and next week's message on how are elders selected are absolutely crucial. Because should the Lord lead us to make this change, who serves is really the most important issue. And how we understand their calling, and that's what we will deal with next week, the issue of calling and how that works internally within a person and then outwardly within a congregation will be before us. But this morning, we deal with the issue of who can be an elder. Just in way of review, just as a reminder, we are considering this for really three reasons. A script, the, the Scripture itself. You read through the Old and the New Testament, you continually come to this issue of elders giving leadership. As I mentioned two weeks ago, when you read of Moses going up on the Mount Sinai, he did not go by himself, but there were 24 elders who went with him, and there was a shared leadership. Now, Moses was the focal point, but there were also other leaders working alongside him. I also mentioned the circumstances that I find myself in as Emma continues to, to recover and to work through the ramifications of her neurological issues. And then, of course, the issue of continuity. That on the day, when the day comes and Trinity starts looking for a new lead or senior pastor, uh, a group of elders gives continuity. So you're not seeking a new person to come in and give their vision for the church. But you have leadership in place that is able to communicate to any prospective new pastor years from now. This is our vision. This is who we are. Can you be a part of this? So that's the why. Last week, we took a look at what do elders do. And I gave this sentence just as a summary that elders are to be conduits of Jesus, displaying the character and compassion of Jesus as they care for the flock. Basically, elders are to show Jesus by his character and compassion as they give care. So what does it look like for a an elder to give care? Well, we identified the care that an elder gives 
in these ways. Elders protect the flock, that is from false teaching. Elders pray for the flock. We see that in James where it was emphasized that if there are any of the sick among you, let them call for the elders who will come and pray for them. They feed the flock. That speaks of a steady, healthy diet of God's Word, both from the pulpit and in other small group settings of teaching the Word of God, feeding the flock, and then leading the flock, giving this direction on on what way the church should go and to address issues and challenges that arise as we seek to be witnesses in the 21st century. So as I said a moment ago, we today deal with who can be an elder. Next week, we will look at calling. As we'll see in just a moment, that's where it starts. In fact, I'll go ahead and direct your attention to verse 1 of chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Within that word aspire deals with the issue of desire, as you can see emphasized at the very end of that verse. It deals with calling. That's what we'll look at next week. Next week, we'll dive into verse 1 and think about this issue of how does God call a person to service? How do we know that? How as a congregation do we affirm that? But today, we're going to be looking at character. Character is the crucial element, not only for elders, but for the church today. I'm going to read verses 2 through 7 now, and then we'll start thinking about who can serve as an elder, specifically thinking about character. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. May God be glorified in the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. I cannot overemphasize the importance of character. Not only as we consider elders, but even as we take a look at our own lives as we are called to be followers of Jesus Christ. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that today in our nation there is a crisis of character. Character seems to be devalued more than ever. And I think there are several reasons that this has occurred. I think we live in an age where we value outcome more than character. Philosophically, this is called pragmatism. In other words, whatever works is what you do, and whatever works is valid and true. And I think in many ways, character has been compromised in the sake of getting the desired outcome. So that if a person has to lie a little bit to get what we want or to, to bend values, we tend to look at it as, well, that's just the way of living and dealing with life today. It's not to be that way for the church. 
character is to be held as a crucial and important trait. Also today we have come to value charisma more than character. Substance has taken a back seat to flash and appearance. So we gravitate toward those who are charismatic without thinking for a moment about what's their character like. Think of who are held up as models today. Who are held up as those that we say, this is what you are to be like. This is who you are to emulate. It's often those who are able to attract attention or to give a quick sound bite rather than thinking through issues of character. In the 1950s, C.S. Lewis, the Oxford theologian and apologist, wrote a, a book called The Abolition of Man. Within that book, in the 1950s, he talked about what he saw happening and what he foresaw happening as character would be devalued. And he wrote in that book this statement, We make men without chest and expect from them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. He used the analogy just prior to these, these two sentences I share with you that often today what happens is we remove the heart from the chest and we still expect blood to pump through the veins. We remove the organ and expect the function. And he's saying that's what he saw happening as early as the 1950s where we mocked honor but we still expected it. And if what C.S. Lewis wrote in the 50s was true then, how much more do we see this now where we make men without chest and we expect virtue and enterprise, where we laugh at character and mock those who would make a stand for truth and then we're shocked when we find liars. Character is crucial. I'd like to give you some reasons why character matters. If, if, it, if really, if, even if I, I don't need to say another word. Character matters because words are important. But character is what makes a lasting impact. Words matter. They do. What we say carries weight with it. We preach the gospel. We teach the gospel. But character is really what can make a lasting impact. D.A. Carson is one of the, the better known theologians today. Professor at Trinity Evangelical Seminary outside of Chicago. Well known, well written. He shares the story of when he was an undergraduate, he was involved in a Bible study trying to lead people to Christ. It was evangelistic in nature. And he said that every now and then they would come across that person who was just that did not want to hear the gospel. And he met one such person who came to him and said, Carson, there is nothing Christianity has to offer that I don't already have. I'm happy in life. I come from a stable family. So there's nothing that Christianity offers that I really need. Now Carson said whenever they came across a person with that attitude, they had one go-to and that was this. They would introduce them to Dave. Dave worked in the campus ministry. He was a single man committed to the Lord. And when they would introduce this person to Dave, Dave would simply say, I want to extend an invitation to you to move in with me. For three months. 
Just come and live. I'm not going to teach you. Just come and be a part of life. Well, they took this person to Dave, and Dave extended that invitation. Move in with me for three months and just, just watch life. This person declined the invitation to move in with Dave, but for the next three months, he watched Dave closely. And at the end of that three months, this person who said Christianity has nothing to offer me became a believer. When asked why, he said, I saw something in Dave's life and in his character that I knew I needed. Our lives should be as such that no matter how much we witness, we should be able to say to a person, just examine my life. Not in a, in a braggadocio sort of way, not in arrogance, but to say I am striving to live by Christ because it is character that makes a lasting impact because character will either support or undermine our message. That's why you'll notice that when the, the qualifications of an overseer or an elder are listed, there's only one skill that is mentioned and that is being able to teach. Everything else deals with character. I often think of the line that the trans transcendentalist poet Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote when he said, What you are thunders. I cannot hear what you say. Our lives will either support or undermine our message. A third reason that character matters is this. The Holy Spirit will always produce character like Jesus. Now, I say that because there are indeed gifts that the Spirit gives, but those gifts will vary. Not every person will be given the gift of teaching or the gift of administration or, or the, the gift of, of whatever gift you may have. But every believer will reflect the character of Jesus if the Holy Spirit is dwelling within them. That's why in the book of Galatians it says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those deal with character traits that will be true in every Every believer. You see, we tend to drift toward the charismatic to say, well, because he can preach, because he can teach, because he can do this real well, he must truly be a believer. I don't think that's the gauge at all. The gauge of a life that is lived in Christ is how much of Jesus are we showing. These things will be true for every believer because the Holy Spirit is dwelling within them. The Holy Spirit will always produce character like Jesus. That's the gauge. Another reason that character matters is this. God's character is his glory. Now the reason I say that is because of a passage found in Exodus chapter 33. I'll show it here on the screen. Moses is up on Sinai. And he makes a request of God. You can see it in verse 18. Please show me your glory. I'd remind you that the word glory in Hebrew is the word kebab, which means heaviness, weightiness. Show me who you are, God. Show me the weightiness of your being. Now, I want you to think for a moment of everything God could have done to show his weightiness, to show his glory. He could have, get, he could have created something out of nothing there on the mountain. He would have said, okay, Moses, you want to see a giraffe? Boom, there it is. There's my glory. You want to meet one of your relatives from the past that has died? I can bring them here right now. 
He could have given a litany of every amazing work that he had done. Well, here's my resume, Moses. There was nothing, and I spoke everything that is into existence. Moses, I would remind you, you want to see my glory? You've already seen it. Didn't you walk through dry land when I split the Red Sea? There's my glory. God did none of those. Look at what God said to him in verse 19. I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord Yahweh, which speaks of his character, his covenant commitment. His, the Hebrew word is has said, his faithful love. And I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God said, here is my glory. It's in my character, my goodness, my mercy. That's my glory. And if God pointed to his character as his glory, does that not point to what we should value in our lives? To say more than anything else, what we should glory in would be our Christ-likeness. I would give you a fifth reason that character matters. Words are important, but character makes a lasting impact. Character supports or undermines the message. The Holy Spirit always produces character. God's character is, is His glory, so shouldn't our character be ours? And finally, the church is instructed to seek character qualities that show Jesus to the world. The church is instructed to seek those things. Colossians 3, 12 through 14, Paul writes, the Holy Spirit says to the church, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, put on then, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on these things, character qualities. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Clear thinking, that is. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Put on faith, love, and hope. Now the reason I emphasize this is that while we look at the character qualities that are required of an elder, I want you to keep in mind there is nothing required of an elder except the skill of teaching that is not called upon for every believer. Elders are simply called to be models. Not perfect. Sometimes an elder would be a model by demonstrating grace when they fail. An elder is to be like the Apostle Paul. Who said, follow me as I seek to follow Christ. I can't emphasize enough how important character is in thinking through leadership. Now, let's dive into the specifics that are listed here. And I will move through these fairly quickly because many of them are self-evident. Nevertheless, we do want to understand the character qualities that are called, up, called for. Not only from elders... But from all of us, we start with this first one. The character of an elder is to be above reproach. That simply means not open to criticism. An elder shouldn't be a person that controversy follows. It's that if something is said negative about an elder, their character should be of such as to say, I just, I don't, I, no, no. Above reproach. 
not open to criticism. Their lives are an open book. And there's nothing to besmirch their name. The next one is probably the one that is most debated today. Where it says the husband of one wife or a one woman man. This phrase is quite frankly a little bit ambiguous. Because the word divorce is never used in this phrase. It literally reads let him be a one woman man. The words that are used there for man and woman or husband and wife are the words for man and woman. And the definition or how they are interpreted depends on the context. So this one could really go either way. It can be the man of one woman or the husband of one wife. And since the word divorce is not used in it, what that means is that if we take it at face value, it would mean, now hear me out, that a person who had his wife died and he remarried, it would rule him out. But, like I said, hear me out. We know that remarriage after death is permitted. But we also know there are cases where remarriage after divorce is also permitted. So the question is, how do we understand this verse? The way I move toward this is that the point is faithfulness. Some interpret this to refer to polygamy. But quite frankly, historically, polygamy was not a big issue in the early church, nor even in the Roman Empire. More of a challenge was this. It was commonly accepted that a man was to marry to carry on his family name in a proper way. But if he had a mistress on the side, that was perfectly acceptable. Because he had a legitimate wife who would carry on the name and bear his children. But if he had a woman on the side that was there for pure, in his term, pure pleasure, that was deemed as acceptable by the culture. And I think in this statement, the husband of one wife or a one-woman man, Paul is saying, no, that is not acceptable. A Christian is to be faithful. Does this, in my mind, rule out automatically a person who has been divorced? I would say not necessarily. It would depend on the reasons for the divorce. How long ago it took place. Could a divorce rule a person out? Possibly. But to me, it really hits more at the character of the man. Is he faithful? Is he a person that is truly a one-woman man? In his words, is he flirtatious? That's a warning sign. How does he treat his wife? Does he show her respect and love if he is married? Because, by the way, I don't think this necessarily rules out single men from serving. Now, you can look later and say, well, it does, because how can a single man speak of, well, his children must be submissive. I think Paul is writing to the common, common state of men at that time. But keep in mind that were we to rule out men who are single, we have just ruled out Jesus and the Apostle Paul from ever serving his elders. I think Paul is addressing the common state at that time. So I think the issue with this is the issue of character. Is he faithful? Is his language above board? Is he viewed as being flirtatious? How does he treat his wife? To me, it deals a little bit more with diving in to the character of a man. Once again, that is the most hotly debated and most difficult one, I think, to, to understand of all these character qualities. 
Also, he's to be sober-minded as well as self-controlled. These two things go together. They speak of being clear-headed, prudent, and thoughtful. Sober-minded deals with the fact that they are able to think through issues clearly. Self-controlled speaks of being very thoughtful and prudent, thinking about the future in their actions. The next one that is mentioned is the issue of being respectable. Once again, that is self-evident. Are they well-behaved, virtuous? Do they carry themselves with a way that, that doesn't demand respect, but calls for it by virtue of their character? They're also called to be hospitable, that is, welcoming and greeting, greeting people. Once again, all believers are called to be hospitable. How do they act toward others? Are they hospitable? Welcoming to people who come to their home and to the church? This is the one skill that is mentioned. If you hold up the character qualifications of a deacon and an elder, you'll find that there is a lot of overlap. But this is what separates the two. An elder is to be able to teach. He is to be skillful in teaching. That's the one qualification that stands out. May not be a preacher to stand up here like I do. But if they are in a small group or one-on-one, they are to be able to teach sound doctrine. Not a drunkard. This speaks once again of self-control. Their lives demonstrate that. Also, we see with the character of an elder, they are not to be violent, but gentle. That word violent refers to, and I love the word pugilistic. They're not quick to argue. They're not seeking a fight. They give the qualities of being gentle. I like the word meek. Meek is power under control. We've all met people that are just itching for somebody to say something so they can get into an argument. That's not to be the case with an elder. They are to be peaceable, not violent. And in fact, this is emphasized with the next one, not quarrelsome. Once again, not seeking a fight. Also, it says that they are not to be a lover of money. This is an an example or a, a statement that is to be true of every believer because it is the love of money that will lead to greater evils. To all believers, it said in Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will be there with you to supply what is needed. First Timothy gives a warning, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's a warning not to be greedy because greed can often lead us to compromise our faith but to be free from the love of money. It also speaks that he is to manage his own household well with dignity, keeping children submissive. Now, there's a balance that needs to be recognized here. Remember, a, an elder is called a shepherd. So the question here is, he's shepherding his family. If he has a family, is he shepherding them? Not being a dictator, because it's very tempting to read that phrase where it says, keeping the children submissive. 
That's like saying, well, what, you know, is he being a dictator with ruling with an iron fist? That's not the case. In other words, are the children being taught discipline in a positive way? What is good? What is bad? How to behave? Are they teaching to guide their children in the way of the Lord? And that's where the word dignity comes in. Once again, it's not saying they're a dictator at home or a pushover. But do we see evidence in their families that they are shepherding their children? Finally, we see the, these final things. Not a recent convert, and they are to be well thought of by outsiders. Not a recent convert, and the warning is given there in the Scripture. Else they may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What that means is that they may fall into the same thing that condemned the devil, which is pride. It's a warning. They are not to be a new convert. And when it says to be well thought of by outsiders, it's a way of saying that even if there is a non-believer, that non-believer may disagree with that man's doctrine and belief, but he has nothing but positive things to say about the man's integrity. Now, I know time is moving on very quickly this morning. How do we develop this character? By abiding in Christ. And we abide in Christ through the spiritual disciplines by being with others who are abiding in Christ. Character is taught. And it's also caught. It's one of the things in any sport. I love playing with people that are better than me. When I was learning basketball, I loved playing with people that are better than me. Yes, they'd beat the living daylights out of me. But I learned. I think it's good for us to be around believers that are more mature. That encourage us and model these things. This morning before we conclude. I want to leave you with the words of Robert Murray McShane. He was a Scottish pastor. Who developed a Bible reading plan still used by many today. He was preaching at the ordination service of Dan Edwards. This took place on the 2nd of October in 1840. And Robert Murray McShane said this. I know you will apply hard to German. He was getting ready to go to Germany as a missionary and as a pastor. But do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword. God's instrument. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hands of God. It's not talent God blesses. It's likeness to Jesus. Once again, this is the crucial thing should we make this change to elders. Character, character, character. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, I thank you that it's your Holy Spirit working within us that makes us like Jesus. And Lord, I thank you for your grace because we are all aware that we fall short of being like Jesus. 
But we are also aware that we don't earn salvation by developing character. Character comes about as we abide in you. So, Father, I pray that that will be said of each of us. That we are abiding in you so that the world will see Christ-like character in us. Because, Lord, on the day we stand before you, that may be the question you put to us. Were we like Jesus? Help us, Father, to attain this. In your name I pray. Amen.